0: Hello and welcome to SCAN, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Roslyn Derskin, and on this episode we're delving into some slightly lesser known and more niche products available in Scotland today. We have an interesting array of produce, which, coincidentally, are all businesses being run by women. The two themes that emerge across all these businesses is the serious commitment it takes to pursue a niche business, and secondly, the time it takes they say good things come to those who wait well these women certainly exhibit great patience in their growing and procuring first up i chat to claire mcdougall of the 1295 caviar company claire is an entrepreneur with a background in marketing for the food and beverage industry her company exclusively imports and distributes strua caviar from france in scotland The name comes from the Old Alliance, signed between France and Scotland in 1295, and now an affectionate term for the long-standing association between the two countries. Claire tells me all about the slow and delicate process for harvesting the caviar, as well as giving me tips on how best it should be enjoyed.
1: What's very common now is like a caviar bump. So just here on the back of your hand, become quite actually quite on trend and quite Instagrammable. Quite a lot of hotels and restaurants are offering this as a, you know, a, a, a caviar bump, which you can then pair with something like a really nice glass of champagne or a, a, a crisp white wine. So that's, that's really my favourite way to, to enjoy it.
0: Next up, I chat to Pinky Medfin and Ronnie Murray of the Tea Gardens of Scotland, who collectively produce Nine Ladies Dancing, a unique blend of tea which is grown in Scotland by, you guessed it, nine different female tea growers. They share their journey from being horticultural novices to producing a highly regarded and sought after luxury product. Who knew you could grow tea in Scotland? But
2: they'd be poor water of the wrong temperature on the tea that you've just bought, whether it's green, oolong, uh, yellow, whatever it is. If you get your temperatures wrong or you brew it for too long, it totally ruins your tea.
0: Finally, I caught up with Sheena Horner of Galloway Chilies. Sheena opens the lid on the fascinating world of chilli growing and how intense a process it can be. She tells me about the huge amount of varieties there are and which hot ones you really should be looking out for. The scotch bonnet barely gets a look in.
3: For example, there's the chocolate habanero. So everybody automatically goes, oh, chocolate. No, it's just the colour of the chilli. You would, you would get an awful shock if you bit into a chocolate habanero because it's extremely hot, but there is no chocolate flavour at all. However, the lemon drop actually has a lovely citrus flavour to it as well as a bit of heat. And I, I love a slice of lemon drop in a gin.
0: I'm now joined by Claire McDougall of the 1295 Caviar Company. Hi Claire, how are you? Hi Ross, I'm really well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, so, on this episode, we were talking about unusual Scottish food and drink businesses, and um, I definitely think Caviar is up there uh, with that. So, um, could you just tell us a little bit how you, how you got started in your business?
1: Yes, uh-huh, I, I certainly can. Um, but I think you're right in what you said. It's probably a bit unusual. We're the only Scottish caviar company around at the moment. My background is in the food and drinking, and specifically in the seafood sector. So I worked in seafood for about six and six and a half years. And um, my now business partner, Simon Briggs, who also works in the the seafood sector, became quite friendly with the commercial director for the company who we now distribute for Syria, based in in Bordeaux. And the commercial director there, Guy de Saint Laurent, approached Simon and asked if we would be interested um, in setting up as a distributor in Scotland for them, because they had other distribution within the UK, but nothing in Scotland, and they specifically wanted. To, to enter into the Scottish market. I think you could obviously see that you know it was kind of really kind of growing food and food and drink scene in Scotland, um, and they were quite keen to, to start working in that market as well. So, yeah, so you know, Simon um, approached me and, and asked if I if I wanted to go into, into the cafe business. And I kind of thought to myself at that point, well. I don't think that's a question you get asked more than once in your life. So, um, yeah, (laughs) I think I'll give it a go. So we set up the company just two years ago, just over two years ago, just as uh, the hospitality sector was just starting to come out of the the final lockdown and obviously I think hospitality was still a bit nervous at that point um, as well of the potential of, of another lockdown so um, I suppose there's never any perfect time to start a business but um, you know it's probably not the best time but um, it, it's really well for us we've been now been trading for, for two years um, and we are at the moment servicing mostly business to business so um, hospitality sector in terms of lots of Scottish restaurants and hotels high-end catering and working um with some quite well-known private chefs in Scotland, as well as alongside um, doing some events work as, as well as that. So, yeah, it's been interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you've, you've mentioned restaurants and hotels and, and things. Where could people go to try the caviar?
1: At the moment, we're, we're supplying quite a few hotels across Scotland. We're just starting to work with the Glen Eagles townhouse in Edinburgh. So that's a new hotel that's coming on board. And they're kind of hoping to have that as something that they'll have on the bar menu. So you can enjoy some caviar with a nice glass of champagne or a nice glass of wine or something like that. We also work with the Waldorf Astoria in Edinburgh, work with the Mark Greenaway there at Grazing um, by Mark Greenaway. Also a little further afield in uh, Anstruther at uh, the cellar in Fife. And we're currently working quite closely with the uh, Glen Turret Le restaurant, specifically with Mark Donald, the, the head chef there, who has come on board quite recently as a, a brand's ambassador for us as well. So we're going to be putting on some caviar Focused events um, at, the, at the restaurant, um, so that's obviously a, you know a great place to, to go and to go and um, try it, and a spectacular menu there as well. Apart from the caviar, and as I say, we also work with quite a few events companies as well. And the Belmont, the so if anyone has the opportunity to go on the, the the Royal Scotsman, we're also supplying the caviar and champagne breakfast there as well. So that's a, a nice little treat uh, for people to to enjoy. Yeah, this is kind of you know far and wide. We're now, I think, established within Scotland as the, the kind of the go-to company if uh, chefs are looking for caviar to have on their menu.
0: And can you tell us about the name as well? So you're the 1295 Caviar Company. I'm assuming that's a date, but yes, uh-huh. um, you can
1: let me know. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit unusual, but I suppose it's, a, it's, it's quite a nice talking point. because People always ask where the, where the name comes from. We are the exclusive distributor for Studia, who are a French caviar producer based in, in Bordeaux. Suria have been around for about 30 years now, um, producing caviar and the 1295 significance is the date that the old alliance was signed between France and Scotland. So we kind of like to think that we are the new alliance, um, and that we are bringing in um, this lovely French caviar. Uh, obviously, a Scottish-based company. Fortunately, we, we don't have any Scottish caviar, so um, you know, French is the, is the next best thing. Um, so that's where that's where the name comes from. It's a bit of a of a nod to to, to that old alliance and that close relationship that we have, you know, with with France as well.
0: Um, so yeah, just you said there you, you can't get caviar in Scotland. So could you sort of explain? I mean, it's it's fish eggs, obviously caviar, but like what what the process is for. You know, sort of getting caviar, how how they go about getting it, and why why France, and why maybe we can't do it here. We
1: don't have in, um in Scotland. France is one of the the bigger producers. People always kind of think it's Russia, um, but or Iran, but actually, uh, France um, are you know, quite a significant producer of caviar. The company that we work with, uh, Surya, have been around for about thirty years. They produce about twenty tons of, of caviar a year, and we work exclusively with them. So we are the only distribution outlet where you can actually get Surya caviar within Scotland. Me, obviously having had the seafood background, I know quite a lot about the, you know, the, the seafood industry um, and I've seen quite a lot of um, fish farms. Um, I've been out to Bordeaux a couple of times now and the way that Surya do it, which is different from some other caviar companies, is that they don't trade caviar, so they don't buy in caviar from different companies and then repackage their own. They actually breed the surgeon and they have the farms and they produce the caviar there as well. So they have um, nine sites across uh, the Aquitaine region in Bordeaux. Six of them um, are fish farms. So they actually breed the sturgeon um, on site and it takes up to three years before they can actually find out if the sturgeon are male or female. They then keep the, the females to produce the, the caviar, which is obviously sturgeon eggs. They have three different types of sturgeon that they produce there. So they have a uh, acipensar berry sturgeon. Thank they have so golden stati which produces the ossetra caviar and then they have husso husso which produces the the beluga caviar so they're actually the only french producer of beluga caviar so again it's quite exclusive to be able to to get that um uh, you now available um in in scotland and they go through the whole you know the farming to production and um, to harvesting uh, of, the, of the eggs everything is done as sustainably as you can do when, when they're farming they have have no gmos they have no antibiotics there's very little interaction with the fish over their of their lifespan, and they actually have to look after the fish for quite a long time. Asifinsar baby is the smallest of the fish, um, and that's actually about seven or eight years that they have to they have to keep the fish until they're ready to, to harvest the eggs. So it's a very long process. Once they do harvest the eggs, everything is done by hand. Um, you know, all of the the actual collection of the eggs, all of the sorting, all of the quality control. It's quite a meticulous process that they have to go through, and and that I, um, I suppose is why caviar is a you know a very premium and expensive product because the length of time it takes to actually get the caviar you know is quite significant. Yeah.
0: So you've said you've been, uh, business has been going for two years. What kind of
1: challenges have you faced, if any, at all? The, the initial challenges, uh, I would say, we're probably actually trying to get the caviar here. Uh, thank you, Brexit. <laughs> As anyone who is importing or exporting post-Brexit probably would appreciate, it's, it's very difficult to navigate and it's a constantly changing system so um, having to understand all of the paperwork and all the regulations that, that go along with that was actually quite difficult at first and all of caviar is subject to CITES legislation so it's actually considered to be like an endangered species because you don't have any wild surgeon anymore. It's It's a bit like Scottish salmon here. It was kind of fish to extinction. So now it's only farmed. So everything has to go through CITES legislation. It's a four week process just to get the, the sign off for that. So it actually takes about six weeks to bring the caviar from France. And like the transportation time is at two to three days. So, you know, that's been slightly challenging. But I would say, again, the UK government's getting slightly better. I think now we're actually starting to turn things around. Maybe about three weeks, which is making it a lot easier to you know to try and bring the caviar in and to predict stock and things like that. So obviously, things like rising transport costs again something that's affected affected everyone. And we've found from the, from the hospitality sector that, that some restaurants just because costs in general are, are are rising and caviar is a premium product that you know it becomes trickier for them. To to, to have on on the menus, so, but I think just even speaking to some uh, some of the chefs, restaurant owners, recently, I think that. People, I know there's still a kind of, a, you know, a, a bit of a cost of living crisis, but I think people are starting to want to go back out again and start to enjoy the food and drink scene again. So I think that, that hopefully that you know, the future is a bit brighter for for us all in that respect. On the flip side of that, I think the opportunity that we've we've kind of seen recently is um now to start to market towards the, the direct-to-consumer um, and the online sales because I think people possibly not going out as much as they, they would have done previously still want to have a little bit of luxury and still want to do things and you know I, but actually to be able to do that at home um, and to enjoy things like you know luxuries like caviar or champagne and things at, at home is actually quite a nice nice treat for them as well.
0: Yeah. So is that kind of your, your future plan are you setting up to Sell direct to consumers.
1: Yes, we are. So um, our website will be live this month. We will have um, a, an online offering available uh, to customers, and that will be under the the Caviar Club brand. So that's we're going to brand it as a, um, a club. We will have two kind of separate aspects to that. So there will actually be a subscription based membership part of the of the club, and for that people can sign up and um, they'll get a quarterly delivery um, of caviar direct to their home. That is anywhere within the UK so that's not just exclusive to Scotland, that will be throughout the UK and as part of that membership they'll have kind of exclusive offers that only they'll be able to to access. The members of the club will be able to access some exclusive varieties that we wouldn't be selling otherwise um, online but we will also have the the opportunity for people who perhaps don't want to sign up to the club or maybe new to caviar, just want to taste it So we'll have what we kind of call like caviar flights, so a bit like a, a beer flight or a wine flight or a whiskey flight, that like they will be able to taste a few smaller tins of different caviars, and they be able to order that online to have that um, delivered to, to their home. We're, going to do things like members only events and things like that working with different different partners and as as part of the club we are also teaming up with um, a charity so the Race Against Dementia charity which is headed up by Sir Jackie Stewart which you might already know of we will be giving a percentage of our profits to to that charity um, as well so it's kind of off to give to give something back, and it's a charity, personally for me, it's quite kind of close to my heart. So the first um, membership subscription will be delivery in September, and that will be every quarter. So that the next one will tie in quite nicely with with Christmas as well for people who want to um, have some of nice caviar for Christmas. Nice. Well, it sounds good. So, what is your ideal serving of caviar? There's lots of different ways to to have caviar. I think it's a bit like things like whiskey. Whatever way you enjoy it is great. But the traditional way to have caviar is actually just to have it on its own. So either on a mother of pearl spoon, because you only ever serve it on mother of pearl spoons. You don't serve it on metal because it can oxidize and, and change the flavor. And so you can enjoy it just straight from the spoon. Or what's very common now is like a caviar bump. So just here on the back of your hand, become quite actually quite on trend and quite Instagrammable. quite a lot of hotels and restaurants are offering this as a, you know, a kind of caviar bump which you can then pair with something like a really nice glass of champagne or a, a, a crisp white wine so that's that's really my favourite way to, to enjoy it traditionally it can be served on bellinis with creme fraiche we've even seen chefs recently do it with a, a baked potato or fried chicken so um, even in desserts so there's lots of different ways to enjoy it but for me on its own, on the back of your
0: hands is the, the best way to, to serve it. Nice. Well, thank you very much. It sounds like an ideal thing for summer. So, um, yeah, yeah. We're glad, glad we're, we're there now. Um, but, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks. You too. OK, I'm now joined by Pinky and Ronnie, who are part of a tea growing collective in Scotland. So how are you both? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Well, very well. Thank you very much. Busy. Time of year. Yeah. <laughs> so, could I just sort of ascertain what your roles are within this sort of tea growing business, and then we can go on to talk about how y'all, how you came together to to start growing tea in Scotland, which is quite unusual. Um, so, Pinky, I'll start with you. What What's your role?
2: Well, um, I'm uh, a member of Tea Gardens of Scotland, and um, which is a group of uh, nine girls, or ladies, maybe I don't know, girls, perhaps better. And I'm, you know, responsible for growing my own tea garden. Um, and then uh, throughout the year, we collect our, our leaf. It's uh, put together with with everyone else's, and we make a tea, which we uh, mix all, all mix all everything together at the end of the season, um, and it's called Nine Ladies Dancing. And my role within that really is just to, to hand over my leaf to everyone to make as much tea as we can, and also um, for my sins, I've been responsible um, in part for. Quite
0: a lot of marketing and trying to sell the tea. Nice. Um, and Ronnie, is it similar for you? You're you're a tea grower as part of the collective. Yeah, that's right. We've all
4: got our own little tea gardens. Everybody's is very different. You know, some have got beautiful wall gardens, and um, I've tea needs to be quite protected, so it, it needs sort of something around the edge. And I've got windbreak actually, <laughs> so it's not quite as exotic, um, but it works for where I am. So yeah, I've got. About a quarter of an acre with 1,200, started off with 1,200 tea plants, a little bit less than that now. We're all branching out to making our own teas as well as contributing a little bit of leaf to our Nine Ladies Dancing, which is our sort of signature tea. You know, because when we started off, we didn't, there wasn't enough leaf. Everybody only had a little tiny bit of leaf, so you couldn't really make your own tea so everybody put it together to make this one tea which was great and it's been really fun to do but now we're all experimenting for the last sort of four or five years and Mm. we're making our own teas as well which is really exciting as well and then within the tea gardens of Scotland Mm. well we do we do look quite a few talks quite big on educating people because it's not only growing tea it's brewing tea there's so much to it it's such a massive subject so doing talks to young people um the website I've um, been responsible for updating, um, and yeah, general class idiot probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um, so, if we could go right back to the start, how so? How did the collective come about? Like, who who sort of decided I'm going to try and grow tea in Scotland? Because, like I said, um, and you're probably sick of hearing this, it's quite surprising that that can happen.
4: Susie Walker Monroe had been growing tea um, from cuttings in a tunnel and e- experimenting with tea in Scotland, and realised that actually we could grow a really interesting crop, but it wasn't it wasn't really um, sturdy enough growing from cuttings. She got nine of us together so that we could sort of do a research project and grow tea from seed in Scotland, so we could um, get leader funding and import seed and. Um, we've got a, you know, um, commercial greenhouses and, you know, really, really went for it. And if you grow from seed, you get a two metre taproot, you know, when the plant is mature, it has a two metre taproot, which mines down and, and gets all the nutrients and things from, you know, from the elements of the ground and it really has a fabulous taste. Whereas if you were just using a plant that had been from a cutting, the roots don't go very deep um, and you know just don't pick up such a flavour and they're not very well rooted for our weather you know because we've obviously got strong winds and lots of frost and very marginal weather so you know she identified the fact that we, we really needed to if we wanted to make this viable we, the way to experiment was really with seed you know that's what sort of led her to to scouting out her crazy friends that would join her and um <laughs> you know get into this project
0: and and are you all so you're all friends so you all sort of knew each other anyway and then decided to all get involved well we we didn't some
4: of us i suppose there was probably somebody knew somebody i mean we didn't all know everybody you know what i mean you know everybody's is very different um and everybody has very different numbers of plants you know some people have very few some people have a lot you know? some people are on hills some people are on rivers some you know very very different so it's got quite in, been quite an interesting journey just seeing how it's worked what's worked and
2: it's been good to be a group of people doing it because we've been able to bounce off each other and what works for one doesn't necessarily work for the other but we've all tried different things like you know in the winter the way we've we've either covered them or put sheep's fleece around the bottom um to keep the the ground warm during the the winter months and lots of people have tried different things and because we're in Perthshire Fife Angus and there's a girl in Kincardenshire who grows some in a polytunnel. We all start off growing period at a different time. Um, we have slightly different lengths of growing periods. And it's it's been interesting to be able to support each other in different ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've tried this. Yeah. Who tried this? And, you know, what about such and such? And it's been very interesting and, and nice to have had that camaraderie, actually, and be able to help each other. And although we didn't know each other before, we do now very well. And yes we're all great friends which is nice
0: Um, and pinky do you was it a kind of conscious effort to make it all women or is it just kind of that's the way it happened
2: i think it's just the way it happened you know it's quite time-consuming and it's for the long term so um you know it wasn't you weren't going to be millionaires in a in a day, or a year, or even 10 years, or ever,
4: actually. Ever, um, I was going to say.
2: <laughs> no, I know, but I think, you know, to, to do a business out of it is, um it's really slow. So you have to be in for the long term. And we were all really at, a, at an age when we'd had our careers, our first careers, certainly. And so this is really a second shot at it. And none of us came from horticultural backgrounds, or marketing, or anything that could be useful, actually. Um, so I mean, quite a few of the girls are great plants women, but it's it's not been something that um you know came very naturally to all of us, so it's been it's been lots of trial and error,
4: yeah, you know we've been learning about you know when you suddenly find yourself having to learn about the pH of the soil, it's like, what's that? you know it's like you know, in a chemistry lesson at school, I'd never thought about pH of soil, and now I'm you know quite interested in it. It's been such a massive learning curve.
0: You've discussed the locations and things in the weather, but would that be the main challenges of growing tea—the sort of climate in Scotland and the you know the different kind of crazy weather?s Or what? What else would you sort of say would be the main challenges?
4: Well, the pH of the soil—it has to be right; <laughs> otherwise, it doesn't grow. Tea can grow with an element of so wind or frost, but wind and frost—you uh-uh. know—it doesn't like too bad elements. You have to be quite protected. Um, I'm very lucky. I live in um, Costa del Creef where we have a little microclimate. It really is very, very warm here. I live at the edge of um, of the mountain range end and, um, you know, I've had a really good yield from my tea, but great casualties, you know, up to 30% casualties. I hadn't really realised that there's a continual having to bring other plants on and replace them and weeding is a massive thing and so we spend years on our hands and knees just weeding actually um and and then to get little reward from it you you know in terms of leaf for so many years has been quite hard but that's been a seven-year journey so it's it's not a it's not a very usual business
0: Mm. um and pinky can you tell us about the nine ladies dancing tea so um, why why the name and also where can you buy it and what does it taste like what can people kind of expect
2: well the the name was thought up by the girl who made who made our tea at a Tea Factory Beverly Rainwright, and um, she came up with it and we just thought well perfect for there's nine of us and that's a great sort of uh, you know it makes you think doesn't it nine ladies that's quite fun and so we've so far we've sold it to a couple of companies down in London and some of the big hotels like the Corinthia and their, their royal penthouse suite had it and um the Bulgarian Knightsbridge and Fortnum's uh, took it on. So it's on their on their rare tea counter, which has been wonderful for us actually. And um, it's a, it's a black tea. It's got notes of caramel, dried fruits. Um, it's quite smooth, um, nice mouth feel, you know, there's no horrible aftertaste of astringency or anything. it's a It's a really smooth, well-rounded tea. Um, quite sweet. Yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting and actually successful, which has been wonderful. The Perthshire ladies who, myself and Ronnie and um, Catherine from Meginch Castle Tea, uh, we put it to our leaf together and made a green tea called Frisky Rascal, which was named after a, a rescue red squirrel that uh, I had here. And uh, he <laughs> uh, he stole all our hearts, so I named tea after him.
4: He was a ba- little baby red squirrel that Pinky fed with a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> And lived it was, in her kitchen. I
2: mean was, you know <laughs> cage in the kitchen, but massive cage. Yeah, he wow. was He went down to the British Wildlife Um Centre down in um Surrey, where they have huge breeding program there. Um, so uh, he went off to live there, but um have a happy squirrel life.
4: But they use the um the frisky rascal was a roasted green tea. I think the first, you know, roasted green tea to have ever been made in this sort of part of the world. Um, and it was used um, at Andrew Fairley's Russian-style restaurant on their New Year menu, which was amazing.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's so interesting because like tea is such an and in, in, intricate, p- intricate part of like British society. But most of us just whack a tea bag in a mug, throw in hot water, add milk, and then that's it. But there's so much more to it. So yeah, like you say, it's like wine or like whiskey with the blending and the waiting for it to to be ready. It's it's a really interesting thing. So it
4: is. Tea is the most. It's the most drunk drink after water. It's the most drunk drink in the world.
0: Wow. I think I think the other thing about
2: about the tea is that trying to um, explain to everybody because why should everybody know because I certainly didn't but if you pour water of the wrong temperature on the tea that you've just bought whether it's green oolong uh, yellow whatever it is if you get your temperatures wrong or you brew it for too long it totally ruins your tea
4: yeah. So I'm mm-hmm. sure there's
2: a lot of people that sort of think oh I hate green tea it's disgusting because they boil the kettle poured it on and this horrible astringent drink. Comes yeah, that
4: out. was me. That was me. I thought <laughs> I'd read that this green tea was good for you. You know, stop getting cancer. All this, that, and the other. You know, this is going back ten years. And you know, I, if you open my cupboard, you'd see loads of different packets of green tea because every time I saw one, I okay, I'll try that one. You know, it must be all right. You know, and it was disgusting. And actually, you know, maybe I wasn't reading the packet or, or the small print or whatever, but it had never come on my radar that. You know, I should be putting 80 degree water on it, not, you know, not boiling water. And the minute that that changed and I entered this world of brewing, you know, it's it just changed changed how I drink tea, totally.
0: Yeah. So it's a bit like coffee's become like that now. More and more people are aware of like, you know crafting coffee so maybe tea will be next well thank you very much that's been fascinating i feel like i could chat to you for like another half an hour but um Mm. yeah i'll uh look out for your your teas and um thank you very much
4: yeah thank thank you you. i mean yeah teas that will be for sale will be advertised through our website you'll be able to find them through our website you know even if they're it'll tell you where they are you know even Mm -hmm. if we're not selling them it'll have links to who is selling them
2: so that's our tea gardens of scotland website yeah and then you be able, you can go in there and click onto each separate garden.
4: tgarden.scotland.co.uk well,
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye.
4: Bye.
0: I'm joined by Sheena Horner from Galloway Chilies today. Hi, Sheena. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Obviously, given the name of your business, your business is Chilies. So could you tell us a little bit how that all came to be?
3: I'm based down in Galloway, obviously by the name, but um, I left the area when I was 17. I don't think this area is very well renowned for spicy food. But when I um, was working in other p- parts of Scotland in the north of England, um, I discovered chilies, spicy food and I really liked it. And then um, when I returned home, spicy food still hadn't reached this region. I started growing some chilies, and I discovered I was quite good at it. And the business has just snowballed
0: from there. And do you often find people sort of say, oh, chilies in Scotland, that's a bit weird?
3: Not so much nowadays, but they always associate that you've grown Scot- uh, chilies in Scotland, they must be scotch bonnets and um, that's it's actually due to that that I refuse to grow them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so for anyone that doesn't know, scotch bonnets are the really, really spicy ones, right? They're kind of small... They're one of
3: them, but they actually aren't anywhere near the spiciest nowadays. There's, there's that many different varieties, so they'll probably be about um, hot to very hot in
0: that kind of range. So are you growing things that are hotter than that? Yes. Yeah,
3: I I have grown in the past the Carolina Reaper, which is the world's hottest, but there's been no much demand for it this year. So I haven't grown any, but I still grow um, Dorset Naga, which um, did hold the title of the world's hottest for quite a while. And also a yellow seven pot, which is called that because basically you can use it in seven different dishes. You can use it seven different times and it'll still keep that heat.
0: Oh, interesting. So that must be that's pretty good for like food waste then if you can keep using it. Is that right? Well, yeah, if you want to. But most people would just use it because
3: they would love that heat anyway.
0: Um, so, do you come from a kind of farming background or like how did you kind of get into growing chilies?
3: Yeah, I, I grew up on a farm not far from where I live now. Love the farming sector, involved in it as much as I can. Um, wasn't able to return home to work. And um, that's kind of why I started chili farming instead. And it's
0: definitely unusual. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what are the sort of um charms and challenges of your job? It's a bit like um lambing.
3: When you're growing chilies at the beginning, you, you can't leave the place. So um chilies when they, they germinate, so we start growing the hotter ones, they take the longest. So we start germinating them in late December, early January. And then um, you've got a you've got a period when it's actually quiet because you're waiting for them to actually appear. Um, and it can take up to twenty odd days for them to actually germinate. However, once they do appear, they're in propagators that sit about twenty-eight degrees, which is absolutely fine, and they're great in there, and it's brilliant. However, you don't want those propagators to get any hotter, because the chilies will actually shrivel up and die. So you've actually got to be here to to regulate that temperature. My propagators are in the greenhouses, so they're basically double double insulated. So yeah, you, you're, there's nothing worse if you've actually nipped away for half a day, and you suddenly
0: think. Oh no, the sun's appeared, it's going to get really warm. Which doesn't seem like it'd be a common problem in Scotland, but it does happen. It does. and how have you found so obviously you know you're saying spicy things weren't really available um they are now obviously there's been a big boom in hot sauce and you know people cooking a bit you know differently with chilies have you found that to be the case for your kind of suppliers
3: yeah yeah i mean um i i grow chilies for um, other chili businesses as well that actually make condiments and hot sauces and yeah it's great that when when i first started i remember say people would say oh can you grow a chili for me and i'd go yeah what kind would you like and they'd tell me red or green and i'd say there's over two thousand varieties of chilies and quite a lot of them are red and green <laughs> which ones would you like <laughs> whereas now it's actually interesting they're coming to me and actually saying i would like this variety or they will give me a rough guide of what they're looking to make and then i will do some research and send chili varieties back to them with descriptions and say is this what you're looking for
0: so what would be this what well obviously we've sort of talked about challenges, but what what is sort of a really good thing about growing chilies? Like, would you recommend it to anybody who's sort of thinking about it?
3: The only thing you need to grow chilies is patience. <laughs> and the amount of people that I speak to say, "Oh, my chili harvest was rubbish this year. They would not germinate," and I went, "Well, what happened?" And it normally a case of they threw them out and didn't give them a chance to germinate, and also again when they're growing. The hotter they are, the longer they take to produce fruit. So when you're um planting them in January and then you plant your less super hot in February, March, those February March ones will still fruit before your hotter ones. So you you need patience.
0: Yeah. So yeah, you need to you need to know that as well. Yes, yeah. so you're not gonna go that's not worked. so we're chucking it out. Yeah. You've said the the market's become quite buoyant, people are really into like hot spicy food, hot sauces and things. What What's, what's next for your business, do you think? Are you just carrying on, are you expanding, or are you trying anything new?
3: We still dabble in other, but I love growing the the extraordinary. So um, we've got lemongrass that we grow here. That's just for my own use though, because I don't think I'd be able to ever grow enough of that. But um, I love, because we've got the propagators, we've got the greenhouses and we've got the tunnel, I love trying out new things and growing them. But we also grow a variety of mint plants as well which aren't very unusual, but in the fact that we actually have over 40 varieties of them.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Do you think that's like another thing that's going to become quite popular?
3: Well, that was, it's actually, I started growing that pre-Covid when everything was nice and buoyant and everybody was in for the gin industry and the perfect serves. So I I had mint to accompany those gins for the perfect serves. And then Covid happened and I ended up with a lot of mint plants. However, there is, there is a lot of interest again coming from them. So, yeah, we're, we're still supplying them to some hospitality businesses.
0: Nice. And chilies can be an accompaniment to gin as well. I've had that before.
3: Yeah, well, my favourite chili, and it's amazing I haven't actually mentioned it yet, is the lemon drop. So it actually does what it says. So if I go back to chilies, you get chilies called, for example, there's the chocolate habanero. So everybody automatically goes, oh, chocolate. No, it's just the colour of the chili. You would you would get out awful shock if you get into a chocolate habanero because it's extremely hot but there is no chocolate flavour at all however the lemon drop actually it has a lovely citrus flavour to it as well as a bit of heat and I, I love a slice of lemon drop in a gin.
0: Nice. And so, how did you just to go back to kind of to the start? So obviously you wanted to grow chilies. How did you sort of learn about it? Was it just kind of by trying different varieties, getting different seeds? Like, how did you obviously you know a lot about them? How did that kind of come about?
3: It was a bit of trial and error, and also um, an awful lot of things like with normal plants, you would be watering them and they would like lots of water. whereas chilies don't, that you've got to be very careful. I mean, a lot of people actually, if they have problems with me with their chili plants, and they say to me, "What's wrong with my chili plant?" I'll. Br- not nine times out of ten they've overwatered it but also the Chile community are absolutely fantastic most of the Chile businesses in Britain are really supportive and help one another out so there's yeah they're, they don't mind you getting in touch with them and saying oh could you help me with this or what's this problem or even for the fact of I've got this variety it's been a disaster this year <laughs> have you got any plug plants that you could sell me so yeah we, we really do help each other out
0: so there's a quite a quite a big chili community in the UK. There's, there's, it's amazing how many there's been a, a few
3: about for a um, Galloway chilies. is just over ten years old now, and yeah, there's there's the ones that were there then that are still going, and we've had some that have appeared and disappeared, and other ones that have appeared during that time and are still going. Not so many of them actually grow. A lot of them just make products, but yeah, there's there's quite a few of us. I think there's three or four in Scotland now.
0: Nice, that's cool. And then, um, so you obviously see so you come from a farming background. Was your was your family a bit like <laughs> surprised by your decision to grow chilies?
3: No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think <laughs> anything I do doesn't <laughs> seem to surprise them. However, they, they definitely aren't one of my best customers because um, they're, they're not into spicy food themselves. But then again, that's the great thing about chilies that um, it's also obviously trying to get that across that there's more to them than spice. They've actually got flavour as well. And, and we grow some chilies that have basically no heat at all. But they they still add a depth of flavour to dishes.
0: And are your main um, sort of people who buy from you hospitality, or you know, could could members of the public come and buy? Because I'm just thinking, the stuff you get from the supermarket is like you see, either red or green and quite spicy. So if anyone was wanting to sort of try different chilies, could they come to you directly?
3: Yeah, we 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 sell we sell plants. So I always um, I, I'm a, I'm like a kid in a sweetie shop when it comes to the chili catalogues. At the end of the year trying to decide which varieties and i've got carried away at times and i think my record was i had 70 varieties one year however we're just down to 20 this year and a lot of them are actually grown for businesses so i ask businesses if they want chilies to get in touch with me november at the latest to tell me what varieties and then we will grow them however i also grow other bits and pieces and they're available for the public and we'll either sell them from home or we'll take them to markets and pods it's very unlikely that they'll be available because they're always Almost always taken by other businesses. Though.
0: So, Sheena, I know sustainability is important to you. So, could you tell us a bit about that? I've, I've, I've always cared
3: about that, and like um, right from the beginning, I suppose um, when the business started, we had a tunnel, and um, which was fine, and it was broad, brand new. However, every other, I've got six greenhouses now as well. I actually prefer growing in them, and the great thing about them is that I think in total they've cost me forty pounds because they're all been second-hand. So people have either offered them or i have, have found them on Facebook, etc. And I'm a, I'm a dab hand now at um, dismantling and rebuilding them. And we also use um, peat-free compost, which is actually made from wool and bracken, which I find is, is a great product. And plastic, we really are trying to, um, any plastic that we've got, we, we reuse it and continue to reuse it, the pots. But um, I refuse to buy anything now that's made, that isn't um, sustainable.
0: That's that's really good. That's good to know. And finally, what are your sort of favourite chili dishes for anyone thinking, oh, I fancy, I fancy using some chilies and cooking tonight? That's a really difficult one because as my as my husband would say, Sheena puts chilies in everything from breakfast,
3: lunch, and dinner. <laughs> so yeah, I'm terrible. Even even um one of uh, the products I I use myself, um I make a chili preserve, and um I absolutely love that in a bacon butty in the morning. So yeah. I don't know if I can actually say what my favourite dish is. Even I have a raspberry preserve, and we have people laughing at how great it is an ice cream because it totally messes with your head and your taste buds because you're getting cold ice cream, but then you've got the hot raspberry on it as well.
0: <laughs> well, that sounds good. I like making chili jam. I've tried I've, a few years for Christmas. I've made that. It's quite, it's quite a good one. Yeah,
3: no, it's a, it's a great staple to have in the house. Very diverse.
0: Well, thank you very much. Um, it's been great to chat about your business. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to all my guests on this episode and thanks to you too for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode of Scran. Scran is a launchable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, and Derskin and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.